0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Emma Fabriguette. You're listening to Season 4, Episode 1 of our in-depth
1: series on security, conflict and climate change. If we look at extreme scenarios, and you're looking at five, six 600 million people at least exposed to coastal land loss and inundation. Today, I'm joined
0: by Celia McMichael, to discuss climate-induced migration. First, I would love to know a little bit more about you, and I'm sure our listeners would as well. So if you could give us um, your professional background, academic background, your interests, a bit more about yourself and who you are.
1: So I'm an associate professor in the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And my research primarily focuses on human migration that's related to climatic and environmental change. So I predominantly work in the Pacific Islands at the moment and do research in collaboration with communities that are relocating due to coastal change. And those are changes that they would attribute to sea level rise. So considered some of the first climate related planned relocations in the world.
0: Mm, interesting. So the topic of our podcast today is climate-induced migration. So if we jump right into it, for those who might not have thought about how climate change can act as a driver of migration, could you explain and help the listeners know what climate-induced migration is at a conceptual level?
1: So it's expected that the impacts of climate change are going to shape human migration and displacement. So things like supercharged storms or more intense and prolonged drought or rising seas and other impacts of climate change can affect people's lives, can reduce the habitability of the places that they live and can create vulnerabilities that can increase the likelihood of migration and mobility. And while you might think of it as a kind of amorphous topic, typically it's categorised into different types of migration. So there may be people who are experiencing or anticipating climate impacts who choose to migrate say to access other livelihood options or to reduce exposure to climate risk and that's broadly categorized as migration there might be entire communities or villages or settlements that relocate and retreat for example in response to sea level rise and there can be displacement so short-term short-distance forced displacements so for example in response to cyclones or storms.
0: Okay, interesting. So then what are some real-life examples of climate-induced migration?
1: Okay. Well, that's a controversial question. So climate-related migration is something that's been talked about for decades. So right back as early as 1990, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that human migration could be one of the most significant impacts of climate change. So since that time, there've been lots of attempts to identify examples of climate migration, to quantify the scale and to predict future numbers. But it's very difficult to actually attribute any specific example of migration entirely to climate change. So it's something that amplifies the risk of migration and mobility rather than solely driving migration. So you need to think about climate migration um, with a bit of caution. But there are some emerging examples where climate change impacts are considered one of the key drivers. So in Alaska, for example, there are indigenous or Inuit communities that are living very close to the coastline where they're experiencing permafrost, thaw, flooding and coastal erosion, which is threatening land collapse and destruction of settlements. So there's quite a few villages, most well known are Shishmaref and Newtok, where they want to relocate to a nearby mainland site away from um, these places of coastal risk. And there've been a lot of international media coverage It's only in 2019 that one of those villages started to move. So this is considered one of the first cases that is very clearly related to climate change. But then there are lots of examples of human migration and mobility where climate change could be considered one of the driving forces. So in Australia... In 2019-20, we had these enormous bushfires that just raged across the eastern coast, the western coast, and destroyed thousands of homes, and 65,000 people were displaced. Now, we've had bushfires forever, and climate change can be considered an amplifier that may have increased these displacements. So they're not just climate change displacements, but the bushfires were you know, intensity and scale larger than what we've seen previously. So they've kind of amplified migration.
0: Mm. Can we not attribute it to climate change because it's hard to quantify and link it directly to it? Or what are the key issues of us not being able to attribute it
1: directly? I guess the issue is that climate change doesn't create an entirely new categories of risk that we've never seen before. You need to think about climate change as an amplifier. So We've always had environmental disasters such as cyclones or bushfires, but then the compounding or amplifying effect of drying or um, altered precipitation patterns can increase the scale and intensity or supercharge storms. So climate change is a contributing factor that increases or amplifies those risks. So in that case, you can't very well say this would not have occurred if it weren't for anthropogenic climate change. The issue is that we have made those situations worse. So then what are the
0: types of geographic regions that are going to be or you think will be the most affected by climate-induced migration going forward?
1: Well, it's going to very much depend on the types of processes. So as I said, if you have a process of sea level rise, which is linked to anthropogenic climate change processes, That phenomenon is going to affect, say, low-lying Pacific islands or atoll states or deltaic regions, such as in Bangladesh. And we are seeing um, examples where people are starting to retreat or relocate or move away as the impacts of sea level rise and coastal change are being experienced and felt. Then if you take something like sudden onset disaster, a lot of the new displacements that were triggered by um, disasters such as storms, monsoons, floods were in East Asia and South Asia um, where you know millions of people are affected by these events and increasingly so. So the geographic regions that experience migration are going to depend on the types of climate triggers and climate events that are occurring.
0: So in 2020, we saw an announcement that a global temperature increase of, I think it was one and a half degrees Celsius is already locked in. So assuming that global temperatures don't increase beyond one and a half degrees, how serious will climate change migration be?
1: Well, if we take one of the climate events of sea level rise, even the most ambitious reduction targets, if we achieve that globally, we're still going to see significant sea level rise out to the end of this century and beyond because there are locked in changes. So if we kind of continue on our current emission trajectory, we might see about one metre of sea level rise by the end of this century. And that's certainly not unlikely. And that means that somewhere between 70 to a couple of hundred million people would be affected by coastal flooding and land loss. Wow. And So those are changes that are locked in. But of course, if we radically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and go to low carbon, no carbon economies, then we do have the possibility of reducing the trajectory of sea level rise and the increase in, say, supercharged storms and droughts. So we can certainly turn this around, but we can't entirely stop this juggernaut of environmental change and impact on human settlements that's occurring. Of course. So if we go to the opposite direction, if it does go beyond a 1.5%, how much worse would climate change migration become? That's a very difficult question to answer. I think the reason I go to sea level rise is because it's perhaps one of the most predictable climate events that is linked to particular trajectories. So if we go beyond 1.5 degrees and we start to look at 2 degrees, 3 degrees, even 5 degrees of warming, then you could trigger really Tipping points where, for example, you have the collapse of the Western Antarctic ice sheet. If we look at extreme scenarios where you get, say, five metres of global mean sea level rise, if the Western Antarctic ice sheet were to collapse, then you're looking at five, 600 million people at least exposed to coastal land loss and inundation. But the thing to remember is these are not simple causal pathways where a climate event will lead to a certain amount of climate mobility. People have adaptive capacity. There are a lot of places where people will choose to live with coastal risk or adapt in situ to coastal risk and climate risks. But certainly, if the trajectories increase, the problem becomes much worse.
0: If we're talking about rising sea levels, how likely would it be to eventually see entire nations disappear as a result of Of rising sea levels. For example, what happens if Pacific Islander societies are forced to relocate entirely or anyone really?
1: Yeah, that's received huge amounts of media coverage. So you take a place like Kiribati, where the highest point is only a couple of metres above sea level. If we see global mean sea level rise increase of two metres, which is an extreme scenario, but not impossible, then that really creates an existential threat. So there are countries such as Kiribati, which are trying to think about alternative futures and have bought up some land in Fiji on higher ground as a kind of security. But I think a lot of those low-lying atoll islands and small island developing states are actually very resistant to being used as these iconic examples of a disaster that's waiting to happen and saying, that is not a foregone conclusion. We still can turn this around and we We need to reduce emissions and deal with climate change at a global level so that they do actually have a future.
0: And what would you say that the international response has been and what kind of international action is required to stop climate-induced
1: migration? Well, to keep it brief, we need to turn our economies around and our societies around to being carbon neutral and I think that there's been a lot of pressure from small island states and low and middle income countries to say that this is responsibility of those high emitting countries to address climate change now so that we can limit warming to 1.5 degrees and even that target is looking increasingly difficult to remain below.
0: And so can the problem even be mitigated if we were to stay on the same path of
1: growth for temperatures? I would say no. If we stay on this greenhouse gas emission trajectory, then we are going to see sea level rise of one metre or more by the end of this century and intensification of droughts and bushfires, and all of these contribute to human migration and mobility. So we really need to rapidly accelerate the decarbonisation of economies in order to reduce those pressures on vulnerabilities and risk so that people can remain in places that they value and they belong and they have strong attachment and they want to remain in those places.
0: Of course, and also the fact is that if these things do end up happening, which they already are, These have huge consequences on the economy and different aspects of society, because it's obvious that more and more people have become aware of climate change and the effects of climate change. And we see a lot of talk about it in the news and in the international community. But why do you think that it's been taking so long and such a big commitment from these international players that I would say have a key role in reaching those targets?
1: That's a tough question to answer, but I think it comes down to economies and to the nature of democratic processes. So the timescale that we're talking about, we need action now to address problems that exist outside of a four-year political cycle. So... We need to be thinking about the risks now, but also the risks into the future, you know, for future generations, for neighbouring countries in our region, say Pacific Islands in Australia, and looking beyond our national interests and in operating globally. I mean, these are big asks, but they are things that have certainly been achieved before. We've abolished slavery, we have dealt with risks to the ozone layer um, by having global legislation in place. It is something we can do and we've seen that with COVID-19 that we've put in place very strong global initiatives to reduce the risk of pandemic and develop vaccines. As a species, we can operate at a global level. So I think we just need to maintain hope and keep on putting that pressure on global processes. And we have seen targets put in place and with a lot of momentum, say, from China and increasingly United States to achieve them. So the window isn't shut, but it's becoming very tight
0: to what extent do you think that climate change is being taken seriously by global leaders like from my perspective i see a lot of talk around it and you know in australia we have rallies and protesting but i just don't know how much faith i have that where i feel like we have a voice but i don't know if it's being heard you know we had the 2015 paris agreement and we have all these targets but Are they realistic? Is it enough? I guess that's what I'm also just trying to get at. Like how good are these policies that they've put in place and how much effort and emphasis on addressing climate change do you think is happening?
1: Well, It's better having a Biden administration in the United States and they've re-entered into climate commitments, which bodes well. And there's also huge momentum in China, which obviously is one of the largest populations and economies globally, to move towards decarbonisation of their economies. So, yes, they're still dependent and using coal-fired energy generation, but there is clear momentum to transition towards clean energy. In some ways, I would say the market is starting to drive some of that change where renewable energies are becoming the more economically feasible and effective form of energy supply. We'll get to the point where it would be ludicrous to open a new coal-fired power station because they just will be too expensive and it won't have a lifespan. So I think, ironically, although the capitalist system has generated the problem of Growth and consumption of resources, which have contributed to anthropogenic climate change. We are seeing some signals that the economy and market is where we'll see significant transition and buy in to renewable energy. Politically, in Australia, it's very disappointing. But when you look at what's happening at a state level, then there are some really positive signs. So, you know, South Australia moving to big use of battery and renewable energy sources. Victoria's also moving strongly in that direction, so there is reason for hope. Perhaps the small island states, low- and middle-income countries don't have that political power, but they are incredibly persuasive on a global scale in negotiations as as a block of countries, and they have put a lot of pressure on, say, United States and China to deal with climate change and decarbonise economies.
0: Definitely. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I had also heard that in Sydney, I think that we don't have proper recycling facilities as well. It's completely underfunded and they don't have the capacity to recycle everything that goes through. And yeah, I think there's just so much more that we can do in Australia. I think we have a really good principle and culture of doing things that are more eco-friendly. Like I do see in Sydney, for example, I know the Bondi markets, Sunday, Saturday markets, you can bring your compost and that's a really good initiative. And people in Australia are really good at putting stuff in the right bins and recycling. I grew up in Mexico and nobody recycles there at all. It's just everything in one bin. So I do think there are good foundations in terms of the culture. But I do agree that a lot more can be done from a government perspective to support and continue to progress and better our practices to reduce
1: our addition, I guess, to climate change. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, there, there are some easy wins, like not putting taxes on electric vehicles so that we can move towards that as our form of transport. And at the moment, they're just outside of the financial reach of many households.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. To that point about electric cars, I think that will be the way to the future. At the moment, the problem is that it's only with luxury cars that you have full electric cars. I know Toyota has hybrid, which is a good step forward. I'm very keen to see more and more companies make more affordable electric cars. And I have seen a huge increase in in places and car parks that now have, you know, electric charging stations, which is something really great to see. But yeah, I'm hoping that will help quite a lot because in the 21st century, at least one person has a car in the household. And that's just something that as we continue to increase in population size, that will hopefully be the future and not continue what we do with just gas.
1: Yep, that's right. I mean, I think as well it, it is a question of, you know, our capacity to understand events at a global scale. So in Fiji, I go to Fiji quite a lot for research, and even though I know what's happening there, it really is quite shocking to go from village to village and see coastlines that have been washed away, houses that have been washed away, and just the onslaught of the impacts of coastal erosion. Now, not all of that's attributable to sea level rise. There are other reasons why coasts change, but it's part of the problem. And for people living there, it's understood as the huge factor that's driving them to need to relocate. And so it's a very raw and real experience in low-lying settlements around Fiji. But of course, living in Melbourne... The impacts of climate change are harder to discern. Even with we have large bushfires, the scale of them was absolutely appalling in the previous year, and yet we are used to bushfires. So just understanding that the climate is changing, that it's affecting us and that it's you know, you're going to create real problems for future generations as well as now is something that is hard to take in until you really experience it. And that's what a lot of villagers say in Fiji is they haven't contributed the most to the problem of anthropogenic climate change, yet they are dealing with the realities.
0: That's exactly it. And also, I think it's so easy for people to ignore what's happening overseas because, you know, it's not happening to you. It's not personal. So it's easy to turn a blind eye. But like you said, with the bushfires, I think that became very personal very quickly people were faced with the reality that every day that when they opened up their windows, you'd see just fog and smoke. And it was a very scary thing. I knew a lot of people that had homes and that got completely destroyed or surroundings. And it was a very scary experience for a lot of Australians, unfortunately. And I think that that really served as a wake-up call. And that's what I'm hoping. But it's also the same in terms of COVID. I mean, in Australia, we're so distant from what is going on in the rest of the world. I have family overseas and it's so hard to relate to what they're going through because sure, we had lockdown for a while and, you know, everybody was wearing a mask, but that was for a few months for us. While that's been the reality for a lot of countries for the past year, year and a half, two years And, again, I feel like in Australia we live in such denial of COVID. You know, people are out and about and people are hugging and rightly so in the sense that we have very few cases and we've uh, done well for ourselves, but it's so distanced from reality outside for us.
1: Yes. I had a very interesting experience in March of last year where I've been going to a place called Wunirongaloa for four or five years And they're the first village in Fiji to relocate. So in in 2014, they relocated two kilometres up the hill because their village site is very low-lying, a lot of saltwater intrusion, they couldn't grow crops, their houses had been damaged, the seawalls had broken and they were flooded at high tide. So the government contributed funds and various donor agencies and the village themselves had to raise funds as well and they moved up the hill. So I've been going there since their relocation in 2014 to just track how that relocation has progressed. It's a small place, there's only about 30 households. So I've come to know people somewhat. And in um, March of 2020, I went back and I'd been caught in those bushfires in 2019-20. So I'd been on the east coast of Australia and had been evacuated and drive through for a couple of days, just smoke-filled landscapes. And they were really wanting to know a lot about it. And it was the kind of poignant moment where there was some sense of a, a very different but shared experience that climatic and environmental changes, which are linked to climate change, had affected us all through making us leave places, you know, for me temporarily in an evacuation and for them permanently in a relocation.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really touching experience as well because that really brings people together in terms of shared, shared experience, obviously, and realisation and a sense of urgency as well because, you know... For you, it's like, this is my home. And then for them, it's like, well, this is also my home. And to have something like that happen is quite traumatic. And then, so I was going to say, how can those who are interested in finding more about this issue or getting involved themselves go about doing that? Can you recommend any
1: publications or organizations to look into Yeah, there's lots of stuff written on climate and migration. For a kind of dry overview, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change puts out publications every four years and also special reports. So they have special reports on 1.5 degrees of warming and on impacts on oceans and the cryosphere, which is kind of, you know, glacial landscapes. So those reports are very good scientific overviews. A few years ago, Foresight UK put out a report on environmental change and migration, which has been really influential. Probably the easiest thing for me to do would be to send you a list of web links. The one thing I would say about publications and policy and overviews is that there is a lot of hyperbole around climate refugees. A lot of people are very wedded to the idea that there's going to be extremely vulnerable people flooding in the hundreds of thousands if not millions across international borders and being displaced that can be identified as climate refugees. That's not how things are playing out at the moment. They're almost indistinguishable from the types of mobility we are already seeing. People moving in response to disaster, people relocating short distances. They're not visibly exciting climate migrations that can be identified. So I would be wary of publications that really push that climate refugee narrative, which has been somewhat discredited.
0: No, definitely. Well, I look forward to having those links if you uh, do send them through and I'll add them to the podcast page so people will be able to go through those as well. And if anybody who did want to get in contact with you, had direct questions, where would they be able to reach
1: you? My work email address is the easiest. So celia, C-E-L-I-A, dot mcmichael, M-C-M-I-C-H-A-E-L, at unimelb.edu.au. Perfect. Well, Celia, thank you so much for joining me
0: today, having this conversation. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure that our listeners did too, and hopefully we'll be able to cross paths again one day and maybe do a follow-up on this topic.
1: Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this in-depth
0: episode. Make sure to check out Global Questions and the Young Diplomat Society on social media where you'll find more information about the topics we cover and upcoming events. We'll see you next week.